Hello, and welcome back to the Thomistic Institute podcast. My name is Father Gregory Pine, and we are joining you here for another installment of Off-Campus Conversations. Very delighted to be joined by Professor Gina Noya, coming to us from Belmont Abbey College. Thanks so much for joining us, Professor Noya. Thanks for having me. Hey, hey, our joy. And by our, I don't know why I say our sometimes. It's kind of like a, a royal hour, or I don't know, maybe I'm I'm joined in my room by someone else. Uh, hard to say, but hey, Thomistic Institute, speaking through me, says it's our joy. Um, so in this particular episode, uh, we're actually going to be following up on a lecture that you gave at Johns Hopkins University to the chapter there, headed up by uh, Kayla Giuliano. Actually, I think she's been married since the last time I learned her name. Maybe it's different than Giuliano. So my apologies to Kayla, but kudos to Kayla for uh, leading that chapter in excellent fashion. Um, but in that talk, uh, you spoke to the nature of end-of-life decision-making, or specifically about quality-of-life judgments. Um, so whenever we talk about anything bioethical, I think the layman feels a little bit overwhelmed by what seems like a technical competence that goes beyond his ordinary knowledge. And so people are like, yeah, I hear about ordinary means, I hear about extraordinary means, I hear about quality of life, I hear about sanctity of life. I don't know what any of these things mean, so I don't feel like I can enter the conversation. So maybe to start, um, would you just, yeah, kind of suss out the details or maybe just define some terms so that we could get started, um, so that we could, yeah, enter into the conversation? Sure. I'll start with the ordinary versus extraordinary means distinction. So when we make this distinction, when the Catholic tradition makes this distinction with regard to healthcare decision-making, it's making a moral distinction, not a medical distinction. So ordinary means, extraordinary means, 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 means is referring to treatment. And so the question is, the question being discerned is whether a treatment is going to be withheld or withdrawn. If it's morally obligatory that the treatment be accepted, we call that ordinary means. If it's morally optional to accept the treatment, in which case it could be withdrawn or withheld, we call that extraordinary means. So how do we determine whether something is ordinary or extraordinary means? The directives, I'll just give the language from the ethical and religious directives for Catholic healthcare services, which are the directives put up by the U.S. Catholic bishops that relate to Catholic healthcare, Catholic teaching on bioethics, kind of both distilled, so it's a fairly short document, um, but also applied in, in ways that sometimes go beyond other church teaching documents. So it's directly relevant in the U.S. context, um, but you're going to see echoes of that certainly in other documents because it's drawing from other magisterial documents. So the ERDs say that the that ordinary means are means that in the judgment of the patient offer a reasonable hope of benefit and don't entail excessive burdens. What counts as an excessive burden. What makes something an excessive burden? Well, this is where the Catholic tradition speaks of weighing benefits and burdens. And so if the benefits of a treatment outweigh the burdens, we would say that this would be ordinary means of treatment, treatment morally obligatory treatment. 
On the other hand, extraordinary means the ethical and religious directives or ERDs define these as treatment that in the patient's judgment do not offer a reasonable hope of benefit or they entail excessive burden. To reformulate that, another way of saying that is to say that the burdens of the treatment outweigh the benefits of the treatment. So again, this would be extraordinary means. One thing that's important to note is that when we consider benefits and burdens in the Catholic tradition, it's a very broad notion of benefits and burdens. So medical benefits and burdens, but also psychological, financial, social, etc. And in addition to considering benefits and burdens for the patient, the tradition also instructs us to consider benefits and burdens to the family and to the community as well. So just to give an example, as far as ordinary versus extraordinary means, I'll ask, I'll start by asking a question. So think about antibiotics. Are antibiotics ordinary means or extraordinary means? Well, hopefully uh, you didn't give an answer or you said, I don't know yet, because that's the answer. So it, it depends on the circumstances um, because antibiotics have certain anticipated burdens, but the situation of the patient is going to ultimately to determine what the burdens are and what the benefits are. Um, so if we give some more context, for instance, if we talk about a patient who is otherwise healthy, young person who develops pneumonia, well, antibiotics in that case are likely going to be ordinary. They're likely going to be obligatory to preserve the patient's life, protect them from other complications, because likely in that case, the burdens of the antibiotics are outweighed by the benefits, or to put it positively, the burdens likely outweigh the benefits. On the other hand, if we think about an elderly patient who is imminently dying um, from another cause, they develop an infection. Well, in that case, it may very well be the case that the antibiotics are extraordinary means. They're morally optional um, because in that case, there is likely going to be no reasonable hope of benefit. I already established that the patient is imminently dying from another cause and the burdens might be much more severe for that patient given their medical condition. So we can't say ahead of time whether a particular treatment is always ordinary or always extraordinary. It's going to depend on the particular circumstances of the particular patient. With respect to quality of life, so we mentioned ordinary means versus extraordinary means. So there's a brief sketch of ordinary versus extraordinary means. Quality of life is terminology that I think gets used a lot without very clear meaning. Um, so I started thinking about and, and, and writing about and speaking about quality of life um, when I was working in the hospital and actually had a case where um, a doctor came to me and said, you know, the, the family's really upset with me because um, I'm not exactly sure why. And, uh, and I said, well, what did you say? And, and the doctor said, well, I, I told them that their loved one had no quality of life. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, well, I think I know why they're upset. Um, and so from the doctor's perspective, though, she hadn't said anything wrong. She was giving them useful information. Um, and so I think there's a lot of confusion or lack of clarity about that phrase. Um, so here's how I think it's helpful to, to, to distinguish different senses. So I suspect that um, one of the reasons that family responded in the way they did with anger um, is that they, they may have understood the doctor to be making a judgment about the value of their loved one's life. So I think sometimes quality of life language gets equated with 
what in the Catholic tradition we might refer to as the sanctity of life um, or the value of, of life. Um, the doctor did not, I don't think the doctor meant that. Again, she thought she was giving useful information about their the limited capacities of their loved one and the health condition of their loved one. But I do think that sometimes this is understood as a value judgment on the patient's life. Okay, so I mentioned sanctity of life. So what do we mean by that? Um, so sanctity of life, I think we're referring there to the intrinsic worth of the human person, coupled with an absolute prohibition against the direct killing of innocent human life. Um, so this, these, these, again, the intrinsic worth of the human person stemming from being made in God's image and likeness, being redeemed by Christ, ultimately being destined for union with God in heaven. So the intrinsic worth of the human person coupled with the prohibition, the moral absolute against the direct killing of innocence. Okay, so quality of life, I think we need to distinguish it from sanctity of life. Um, okay, so once we've done that, I still think there are different senses of quality of life that are used. And this also might underlie the reason the family responded the way they did in anger to the physician. So in its proper sense, I think that quality of life you could define it, and I defined it in my talk, as how well a person's life is going for him or her based, for example, on physical, psychological, social, economic, and spiritual factors, and how he or she weighs these in relation to each other. It's proper sense. I'm saying it's in its proper sense because it's in the judgment of the patient. I think the language quality of life also gets used in this other sense, which I refer to as the external view of quality of life. And here it's a rating of how well others think a person's life is going for him or her based primarily, and it really only can be primarily on observable factors. And so even if, even if the patient's family didn't understand the doctor to be making a judgment about the value of their loved one's life, they still might've been upset thinking that the doctor thought she knew enough about their loved one to say on a whole how their loved one's life was going for her. Okay, so I think we've kind of gone through ordinary versus extraordinary means, sanctity of life, these two different senses of quality of life, but then also what I take to be the really the proper sense of quality of life. Okay, um, so as you describe these things, uh, you introduce a lot of factors which need to be weighed or judged and then incorporated into a human communal process of decision-making. All right, so maybe to zoom back out and just think about this a little bit in terms of where it falls within the history or the general theory of moral theology, um, which I'm not the best trained in, but I have some passing knowledge of. Uh, and it seems like, at least in the theological uh, space that I work in, uh, you have a kind of oscillation between this like hyper deductive and then the wild and woolly. What do you mean by that, Father Gregory? Well, I'm not entirely sure, but I'm gonna figure it out as I talk about it. Um, you see like mid 20th century, a kind of reaction against what people call the manualist tradition, which is sometimes right called into question because 
it sounds as if everything in our moral lives can be deduced as if by like a strict logical science. It's like, oh, well, you know, like weigh X, Y, and Z factors. And then the answer is certainly this. And so people push back against that. And then you have some moral theologians or you have some theologians of the mid 20th century who will say like, no, the main moral criteria is like the following of Christ or the main like uh, moral criteria is table fellowship, like a la Hans Kuhn or like Bernard Herring kind of pushes against a lot of this scientific thing and says, really, it's more about like the communal setting or it's more about the way in which we receive the spirit. And a lot of that criteria just sounds utterly unverifiable. It's kind of like a black box claim that usually ends up in heterodoxy. And so people are nervous about that. But it seems like we occupy a space between the hyperdeductive and then the wild and woolly. So there are factors that can be pinned down, like this is an intrinsically evil act. You cannot lie. You cannot murder. You cannot commit adultery. You cannot apostatize. But then there are also human factors to be taken into account. So you talked about the psychological or the communal or the societal or et cetera, et cetera, right? There are different things that factor into the decision. Maybe if you could just, just could you speak a little bit about bioethics in this setting? Like, um, you know, that it's, that it's, practical, that it deals with prudence, that it's it's going to draw on the stores of our practical wisdom so um, it doesn't end up looking like the one or like the other. I don't know if that affords you a good launching off point for further um, musings, but yeah, something along those lines, does that strike a chord? Sure. Okay. Let's see. Um, Trina, let me see if I can approach it from, from both perspectives. Um, I think maybe... Let me approach it first from the perspective of the temptation to think that, okay, here here it is, the temptation to think that if we just knew what the church teaches on bioethics, we would know exactly what to do in every circumstance related to healthcare. I think that's a temptation. Um, I think it's uh, more than that. I think it's a misunderstanding a lot of the times um, that we think that the church gives us answers to all these situations. Okay, so as you mentioned, absolutely, (laughs) the church teaches on a wide range of bioethics issues, meaning the church gives us principles and sometimes also applications of those principles. Um, So with respect to these end of life or healthcare decisions, we have moral absolutes, um, as we mentioned, don't murder, what that looks like in this context, no euthanasia, no physician-assisted suicide, no withdrawing or withholding ordinary means, those that are morally obligatory, no withdrawing or withholding extraordinary means with the intention of causing death as well. So we have a variety of things that fall under this prohibition and this moral absolute um, against the direct killing of innocence. Um, In addition, the church in different documents from, for instance, the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, uh, different encyclicals, um, the ethical and religious directives that I've mentioned. The church does also give us some additional application um, of the principles. So for instance, um, so I mentioned more absolutes. We also have principles like this distinction between ordinary and extraordinary means. We have the principle of double effect. And sometimes we do see applications of those principles. That said, even in cases where we see the application of the principle, we still have to reason from that application to our particular case. Um, So most of the time, I don't think we have 
a very clear directive from the church as far as how to apply the principles that are very clear in the tradition to our particular situation. We might have a lot of guidance, um, but we still ultimately have to, as you said, use prudence. Um, We still need to discern its application in our particular case. Um, Okay, so that's one thing is to recognize the responsibility really of the individual to apply the principles. Um, and, and from there, we can talk about the need for an informed conscience, the need for seeking counsel on from people who are familiar with the bioethical teachings and their application, the need for prayer. Um, so we can, we can talk about the need for all of those things. Um, at the same time, maybe maybe a, a court a related uh, error or, or misunderstanding is to think that that's that's all we need. Okay, so maybe we acknowledge that we need more than just the teaching itself. Maybe we acknowledge that there is a role for human judgment, human discernment in applying the principle to our situation. But maybe then we still think that's what we need. But it's not. <laughs> we still need. In the application of these principles, we need, for instance, medical facts. Um, We need information about, I mean, we mentioned financial considerations play into this. So we need information about our insurance, which is often hard to come by even when we're seeking it, right? But what our insurance covers, um, what it doesn't cover. Um, So we need information from from others, totally outside of the, uh, you know, Catholic context, that that must be a part of our discernment that we need to factor into our discernment. Okay, so maybe following up then on considerations of prudence, a lot of people talk about, especially in the 21st century, that you need to inform your conscience in order to make a good choice, which is all well and good. Uh, But I think that we would benefit from introducing prudence more into the conversation insofar as, okay, so conscience is a kind of judgment that this either corresponds with or departs from moral knowledge, as I have a grasp of it in this particular situation, whereas prudence, it's kind of, you know, it's poised for action. And I think that in the 21st century, a lot of us feel paralyzed in the sense that um, we don't want to make the wrong choice And so we're often deferring to the professional, to the expert, to the scientist, to the bioethicist. Uh, And it's good, obviously, to take counsel, to consult your experience, to be docile to those who are wiser and perhaps better formed in whatever is, you know, at stake in this particular decision. But I also think that there's something to be said for like being an agent in healthcare or in, you know, like taking care of your family, taking care of your loved ones. So, yeah, I don't know how that appeals to you with your particular formation and clinical experience, but what might you say to cultivating the virtue of prudence in the 21st century, particularly in these settings, when it comes to making uh, ethical choices regarding quality of life um, against the backdrop of the sanctity of life? Sure. Um, So I guess maybe it's worth just putting on the table a definition of prudence, um, right? We're referring to it. um, We can just take it from the catechism. Um, So the virtue that helps us to know um, the true good in the circumstances and the right way of achieving it. Um, So when we're talking about 
medical treatment decision makings, the true good we have in view is health, I would say, or maybe more broadly, just well-being. Um, so the right means of achieving it. Um, this is the question I think that prudence is in particular aiding us with. Um, and we've already mentioned a, a number of things that I think prudence itself is going to involve. I mean, I think it's prudent to seek out, uh, you know, church teaching on these issues, to seek counsel, um, to gather information um, from healthcare professionals. Um, but as far as the agency part of it, um, in, in a way, I feel like I, I would answer this question more from my perspective as a patient, right? My experience as a, as a patient and, and being involved in, in healthcare treatment, decision-making um, with, with, you know, those in my own family. Um, but I think as far as focusing on the agency of the individual, I, let me just give some really practical points here, I think. And, and again, these are going to play into how prudentially we can we can discern right with the virtue of prudence, with the aid of prudence, the right means of achieving the good of our health and our well-being. Um, so here's what I would say. Um, going into a doctor's visit, or if you're in the hospital setting, you know, you know, if the doctors are coming around on rounds, or so going into a meeting at the hospital or a doctor's visit, I would say um, write down. The things that you think are important for the medical professionals to know about yourself, about your life, about what's meaningful to you, um, about what the current concern is, medically speaking. Um, and then also write down questions that you'd like to ask um, the medical professionals. Um, I say this for a few reasons, right? This helps to organize our thoughts. Um, it helps us to um, have in mind what is the most important, what are the most important things to communicate. Um, also, again, drawing on my experience as a patient, but also being familiar with some of the studies, um, this is, in my mind, and, and I want to say, I know many wonderful doctors, so I don't at all mean this as, um, you know, you know, doctors <laughs> doctors are not good, not at all. Um, but unfortunately, um, studies show that doctors don't always do the best job listening. Um, actually, on average, they interrupt uh, a patient after only 11 seconds of the, the patient's speaking. Um, so you only have 11 seconds to communicate um, what's the most important thing. So what are the most important things? So this is why I'm saying in part, um, write things down. Um, so that way you can get right to the point. <laughs> you can, and you can make sure that you don't forget questions and you're asking the most important questions. Um, and of course you can add things that you think of on the spot. Um, but just, I think just as a very practical way of, um, of um, enabling, or what's the word I want to use, um, supporting the agency of the individual. Um, just another another thing on, along these lines. So it's it's interesting because we're like this term agency. Also, often I think of as a kind of like an individualistic um, good, right? Like that you're an agent, but of course we are also incredibly dependent <laughs> on other people. And um, actually, I think recognizing that. Um, and it is, 
is going to actually enhance our agency in the long run. So one of the things in particular that comes to mind is especially, I mean, I mean, we could be talking about just, you know, very minor healthcare decisions that it's very obvious what, you know, what we should or, or shouldn't accept as far as treatment goes. Um, but when it comes to weightier decisions, um, whether this doesn't necessarily have to be an end of life decision, but even just, um, you know, weightier decisions, uh, even young and healthy people have to make with respect to um, treatment. I mean, so for instance, I can think of um, sometimes I have, I've had students that are athletes and they're trying to discern, you know, about uh, certain, you know, stem cell treatment, you know, so this kind of a, an example where it's a, it's a weightier consideration. Um, okay, okay. So write down things ahead of time, but also I think it can be very helpful to have someone you trust go with you or be present for the conversation. Um, so depending on the situation, this might be, you know, just somebody who is there in part to give you moral support, um, but also to have somebody there who can help to advocate for you, um, who maybe, you know, can be is more clear headed about it, who isn't uh, suffering in the same ways that you are. Um, and so I think having someone with you um, also can actually maybe, you know, paradoxically en enhance the agency, your agency um, in this case. So. <laughs> yeah. It's actually it's interesting as you as you're speaking, I'm thinking about an experience that I had um, and a lot of the criteria that you give or the suggestions that you make correspond with my experience, whether by affirmation or by negation. Um, so I like I had a knee injury. Um, what was it called? An osteochondral defect of the lateral femoral condyle, basically like cartilage and bone from the end of my femur in my knee got stripped off by overuse or by pounding from running or something like that. So I was running one day and I came home and then it became clear to me that something was really wrong with my knee because I felt a twinge of pain. And then after that twinge of pain, my, like the articulation of my joint was all wonky. Like it was like hyperextending in weird ways. And I was like, this is bad. And then I went and played sports a little bit later and then my knee swelled up like a melon. Um, so perhaps irresponsibly, I used my medical insurance to get a couple of opinions. I don't know if that's born out of doubt of the medical profession or out of abundance of caution. Hard to say. But um, I just had some bad experience because I felt, like you said, interrupted after 11 seconds and just kind of pushed along. Um, and I felt kind of depersonalized and dehumanized. And part of that, I suspect, was because I went alone in each of these instances. And I just felt kind of bare and exposed before the medical machine. But then I went to this doctor, Dr. Mark, and he came into the room. He was late. And I get the impression that he was late because he was doing what he did with me with all of his patients. But he sat down. He asked me my name. He held eye contact. He got my story. He took a kind of inventory of you know, like how I am and how I act. And then he, you know, like looked at the MRI. He described to me what he saw. He described all of the different kinds of treatment that could be undertaken. And then he described to me the rate of success of each of them, what he would recommend given my age. And so like he provided me with knowledge, but he did it in the context of a relationship. And at the end of it, <laughs> at the end of it, I was on the verge of tears. Uh, because I was so moved. And I just said to him, like, I want to be a priest the way that you're a doctor. <laughs> but it brought before my eyes the fact that, um, yeah, you're not just treating a pathology, right? You're not just fixing a problem. You're in, you know, relationship with another human being, if it, even if that relationship is transient, if it's passing. 
Um, so maybe, okay, against the backdrop of that experience, you don't have to take that into account at all, but it's helpful for me, given what you said, to make sense of my own experience. Um, but the, I'm, I'm, I suppose that I'm interested by the role of like love in this relationship, not in a kind of, again, wild and woolly way. Um, it needn't be something like very emotional or something very like effective, but the, like this fact of relationship that you have to establish a relationship between patient and caregiver, uh, that you have to establish a relationship among the members of, you know, like the patient's kind of like support group in order to help that patient make an informed decision, a decision which he or she will not regret. I went and like did what he recommended. The surgery ended up failing a year later, but I have no regrets about it because I feel like I took the decision in the context of a relationship and I knew what I was doing. So maybe if you could speak a little bit to like this, this dimension of love uh, or this dimension of relationship and how it conduces to our prudent decision-making. Hmm. Okay, so what is love? <laughs> um, so I think a lot of people, um, I always I always get my students on this, but you ask like, what is love? They always know it's willing the good of the other. Okay, so we can talk about that. Welcome back to that. But according to Aquinas, there's, there's a second part, right? <laughs> Which is desiring union with, the person in some way. Um, so for, for whatever reason, I think that often the second part gets dropped out, but it's of course equally um, as important. Um, but with respect to the willing the good, um, can think of, can say a few things about that. Um, so willing the good of the other, um, we have to know what the good is. Um, we have to know what the good is not. Um, so this of course, brings into play um, some of the things we've already mentioned as far as moral absolutes. So that is you know, part of this. Um, as far as what the good is, um, we need to have knowledge. And again, we've, we've touched on this already, but we need to have knowledge about ourselves and or our loved one, right? If we're involved in their healthcare decision-making. Um, but we also need to have knowledge about the medical condition, about the diagnosis, about the prognosis, about treatment options, about the benefits and the burdens of those treatment options, about what it looks like if no treatment is pursued. Okay, so love willing the good requires knowledge of what the good is. Um, one other aspect to mention with respect to what the good is we're talking about not just the good for any patient, but we're talking about the good for the particular patient. Um, and, and part of what the good is for the particular patient is achieving the deepest desires of their hearts, um, which of course might be sometimes mis misguided, um, but there's still some goodness that they're aiming at there. Um, and so Willing the good for the person also certainly has to involve um, knowing, or so whether it's ourselves or, or someone else, I'm, for some reason I'm switching to if we're involved in someone else's care, but um, knowing the deepest desires and then um, how these can be achieved, even if it's not in the way that um, we or the other person conceives of them. Um, okay, so those are some thoughts on, on willing the good. Um, as far as desire and union, um, 
I actually think with respect to, and, and it probably depends on the situation, but when we're talking about end of life situations or, or difficult medical decisions, um, for instance, uh, involving a lot of suffering, um, including psychological uh dimensions um, for for even you know younger people where it's not at all a question of end of life decision making in a way I think that this aspect of desiring union um, can be the harder the harder part um, which kind of seems counterintuitive um, on the one hand I mean if you're helping a loved one make decisions um, we're already stipulating it's a loved one, it's someone that you love. And so in a way it will be just something naturally that I think we can respond out of love um, to help them. But here's the thing, going through these kind of situations, these the suffering, going through decision-making while the person is often suffering tremendously is really difficult to, to be with them through that. Um, it's difficult for them and it's difficult for us. I mean, sometimes <laughs> for, you know, if you've experienced going through a difficult time with somebody, someone going through a difficult time isn't always the same, right? I mean, <laughs> uh, they can be, um, they can be not so nice to us, even, even when they know that we're, that we're doing our best to help them. Um, and so there, I think ultimately something that can be helpful just to turn in a more theological direction um, is to keep in mind that we're caring for the body of Christ. Um, and so I think love of God there, um, the virtue of charity um, is, is necessary to enable us to love the person well in what is, can be a very difficult situation. Okay. Well, I think in these conversations, you know, when assessing quality of life and sanctity of life, oftentimes you're doing so in a setting where uh, it's grave for the patient involved. Um, obviously, in the 21st century, we have a pretty acute fear of death, which has been on uh, worldwide display for the past few years, um, which, you know, is to be expected insofar as it's the least natural of thing for us um, in the ordinary course. Um, but, but as you have kind of teased out some of the details of this account and helped us think through the implications of it for our own particular and concrete lives, maybe just as a, as a final question, if you could speak a little bit to how the art of dying well helps us to bring into focus the art of living well. Because I think that people see their lives and their deaths as utterly unconnected. It's like live to the hilt and then eventually this mortal coil will dot, dot, dot. You know, like your life will be extinguished. When truth be told, I think there's a Christian tradition which sees the present in continuity with what lies in store, both death and then beyond death. So I don't know if you have thoughts on that, the way in which the art of dying well informs our present practice of seeking to live well. Sure. Um, I mean, I think what really is highlighted at the end of life is the importance of spiritual preparation for death and relational, I guess you could say, preparation for death. Um, so, I mean, in the hospital setting, I'm thinking specifically, and, and the ethical and religious directives speak to this as well, um, but that healthcare professionals, Catholic healthcare is called to ensure that patients have adequate 
preparation spiritually, personally um, included for their death. So spiritually, of course, um, the sacraments come to mind that we have adequate opportunities for people who are dying to receive the sacraments um, at the end of life. Um, Relationally as well, I think this is something that really gets highlighted in the hospital setting is that we want to enable as much as possible the patient who is dying to say goodbye to loved ones. Um, And often this involves reunion with loved ones where there's been some fracture in the relationship. I mean, this is um, not at all out of the ordinary where, um, you know, a reunion takes place. There's been years and years of separation and um, it's only as the patient is dying that, you know, either the dying patient or the loved one seeks that reunion. Um, and so if if in preparation for death, the spiritual and relational aspects are the most important, then I think that tells us something about what ought to be the most important things um, in our lives as well. And I think um, we spent a lot of time, I think, talking about the importance of the relational aspect. And so, so we've kind of, I think, come full, full circle there. <laughs> we have indeed. Great. Well, thank, thanks so much. Um, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks so much for patiently setting forth those distinctions at the outset. So that way we could think our way through some of these conclusions as the conversation has progressed. Um, yeah, certainly it's a question about which many people have, uh, quite a few anxieties, right? Or quite a few doubts. So it's, I think it's helpful just to kind of work through some of the principles and work through some of the arguments. So even if, you know, when it comes time, one still feels the need to appeal to an expert, you have a kind of base. It's like a lot of priests will tell you that if they have a difficult marriage question to resolve, you know, they remember back to their canon law course, they don't exactly remember all of the different implications or how they're applied in this instance, but they know enough to know that they should call a canon lawyer, (laughs) which is sometimes to know a lot. Um, So it's super helpful, yeah, just to have this sense and, um, you know, have this conversation as a way to inform our own agency, whether it concerns ourselves or whether it concerns those whom we know and love. All right. So um, if folks would like to follow up with you or find uh, other outlets whereby to kind of like profit from what you've described, where might they go? Sure. So um, you can always email me my Belmont Abbey College email address, Gina Noya, no dot, Gina Noya at pac.edu. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for taking the time again. And um, yeah, thanks for your contributions on campus for our students who are super appreciative and have benefited greatly. Um, So to you, the listener, thanks so much for having tuned in to this episode of Off Campus Conversations. Um, As you have become accustomed at this point, they drop every two weeks. So look forward to uh, chatting with you at the next opportunity. And if you have particular requests, hopes, desires, dreams, aspirations concerning future off-campus conversations, feel free to drop those into the comments. And um, the folks who work at the Thomistic Institute will be sure to relate them and incorporate them into future programming. Uh, If you haven't yet, please do subscribe to the Thomistic Institute podcast, wherever you listen to your podcast, be that on a podcast app or on YouTube. Uh, And then do like and share as you see fit. All right, so know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us. And we will look forward to chatting with you next time on the Thomistic Institute podcast. Bye.